This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It has reshaped American strategy because it's introduced a variable into our long-term strategic thinking, which is the realization that Americans can have such disparate perceptions of what's happening in the world and of what's important and not important. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. 2021 is two months old and 2020's challenges remain with us. Namely, the COVID-19 pandemic that has killed more than 400,000 Americans and put a spotlight on societal inequities. Our divisive politics are still with us post-election and the start of a new administration with a new agenda. Hopefully, you joined us back in December for our annual Look Back, Look Ahead episode. As a follow-up, I turned over the podcast to the permanent junior staff of the CSIS International Security Program to hear the perspectives of our next-gen scholars. This conversation is moderated by my Smart Women, Smart Power Program Manager, Christine Brazo, and it features ISPs Emma Bates, Suzanne Clays, Katrina Doxey, Grace Wong, Davey Nyer, Simone Williams, and McKenna Young. I want to start out by briefly introducing all of you. Suzanne and Simone are members of the Project on Nuclear Issues. Katrina and Grace work for the Transnational Threats Project. Davey works for the Defending Democratic Institutions Project, McKenna is in the Aerospace Security Project, and Emma works for the International Security Program. We're just about one month into the new Biden administration. Can you all briefly tell me how you think the last month has reshaped some of the stuff you're researching or what you're focusing on? Let's start with Suzanne today. Great. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. It was a busy month for arms control. The Biden administration came in and pretty shortly after inauguration, he got on a call with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss a range of issues, including the extension of the last bilateral arms control agreement between the United States and Russia, the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START. New START limits the number of deployed strategic nuclear warheads and deployed strategic delivery systems each country can have and provides critical transparency and confidence-building measures. On January 26th, President Biden and President Putin discussed the extension of New START, which was set to expire on February 5th, 2021. On the call, they verbally agreed to a clean extension, which would extend the treaty for a maximum of five years without any preconditions on either side. On January 27th, the extension was brought before the Russian Duma, where it was quickly approved in both houses of parliament and signed into Russian law on January 29th, 2021. On February 3rd, just two days before the expiration of New START, the United States confirmed the extension of New START, a move that didn't require congressional approval. The extension of New START was an opening move, but more work must be done. In the short term, the United States and Russia need to safely resume bilateral inspections to ensure treaty compliance, as well as to work to safely resume the Bilateral Consultative Commission to sustain technical interactions, both of which were halted during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's great, Suzanne. It sounds like it's been quite a busy month. Why don't we head over to your colleague, Simone? As it pertains to nuclear issues, Suzanne has covered a lot. 
For myself, I've been keeping an eye on commentary surrounding presidential authority to launch nuclear weapons. And with the events of January 6th, we saw that critics and experts re-upped concerns about presidential sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. There were several statements like Twitter took away Trump's account, but who will take away his nuclear button? While many experts advocated against sole authority regardless of the president's political affiliation, meaning that they were still against sole authority, whether it was Trump in office or Biden. I think it is something that we should keep our eye on because it's an issue that won't go away. And it's also an issue that we look to the public for support, yet separate them from discourse that revolves around nuclear policy. But I'll leave the rest of all things nuclear to Suzanne. I am extremely interested in President Biden's approach to representation, diversity, and inclusion, and how it's impacting personnel appointments, policy, national security, and even the work and research we do here. Some of his initial executive orders, several of them were pertaining to advancing diversity. And the one I was most happy to see was when President Biden's executive order rescinded the diversity training restrictions on federal government and contractors, which was implemented last summer by the Trump administration. As a program that provides young professional development opportunities to advance the pipeline of professionals in nuclear security, many of whom are in government, we saw firsthand the impact of the executive order restrictions. So yes, I'm extremely interested in President Biden's focus on DEI and how it will continue to affect my work here. Thanks so much, Simone. I totally agree. I think it's really important that we're paying attention to diversity issues, and it's, uh, it's very heartening to see that our administration wants to really pay attention and be intentional in their inclusivity across the board. Why don't we head over to Grace this morning? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, last month has marked a really critical point for U.S. presence in the CENTCOM AOR. In January, the U.S. announced that it will draw down its troop levels to 2,500 in both Iraq and Afghanistan, which is the lowest it's been since 2001. And this really is going to have major implications for the Biden administration's next steps. I'll be happy to talk about it more later. Thanks, Grace. And why don't we go over to your colleague, Katrina? Yes, and thank you again, Christine, for having us today. So much of my work at CSIS recently has focused on the threat of domestic terrorism. So as you might be able to guess, uh, the events of January 6th have definitely drawn more attention to what I've been working on, and particularly the threat from white supremacist and anti-government networks in the U.S. At the same time, though, it hasn't really changed my research agenda. So prior to January, our analysis within CSIS, as well as threat reports coming from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, all pointed to white supremacist networks as the greatest terrorist threat within the United States. For instance, based on our CSIS data analysis through the end of August 2020, White supremacist and similar far-right violent networks accounted for about two-thirds of all terrorist attacks and plots in the U.S. Despite that evidence, the government hadn't been putting the necessary level of resources and attention toward countering that domestic threat. And the rest is history with the events of January 6th and now the response to it to figure out how to shape U.S. domestic counterterrorism policy moving forward. And so I hope that will start to change now as the Biden administration really directs its focus to assessing the domestic threat landscape and figuring out policies to move forward to prevent something like that from happening again. Thanks, Katrina. The work you guys are doing is so interesting. And I think it's very important to discuss these issues as we saw, you know, they kind of bubbled up on January 6th. 
Why don't we head over to Emma? Thanks, Christine. So let's take a step back a little bit. I focus on overall American strategy and trade-offs and decision-making. I think the last month, I'll cheat a little bit and include early January, it has reshaped American strategy because it's introduced a variable into our long-term strategic thinking, which is the realization that Americans can have such disparate perceptions of what's happening in the world and of what's important and not important, you know, what makes the news on our outlet of choice. When it comes to the big long-term decisions we'll need to be making in the next year, for example, do we prepare our military for large-scale conflict in case it happens soon? Or do we invest in the R&D needed to be competitive 20 years from now? Do we need to protect key American industries and ones that could be leveraged against us? Or do we invest in the kind of collaborative and interdependent innovation that leads to economic growth? We should expect those deliberations to be not just colored by partisan interpretation and dogfighting, but really plunged into a sense of reality and unreality that makes strategic decision-making difficult and makes often the right strategic choices politically impossible. So that's what I think the Biden presidency is going to have to deal with as we take this pivot point from one era of American focus on you know, global terrorism and towards an era of focus on great power competition. That's really interesting. Thanks, Emma. Why don't we head over to Davey? Thanks so much, Christine, for having us. And actually, Emma and Katrina's comments really lead in to a lot of the work that our team is working on now. So um, I'm with the Defending Democratic Institutions Project, and we primarily look at how cyber and cyber-enabled disinformation operations undermine trust in democratic institutions. So 2020 and, and really the start of 2021 gave us a lot, lot to work with and had a lot of implications for our research, mostly just in terms of disinformation being this hugely recognizable issue that exploits societal divisions and amplifies and distorts domestic grievances in ways that really lead to exacerbating and in some cases instigating really dangerous situations. But looking really specifically at this last month, we started off the Biden presidency with his inaugural address on January 20th, where he had this great call for unity. And, and you know, now it's that fun task for all Americans to try to define what exactly that means for a country like the United States, especially given just how wonderfully diverse the country is. And we have to start asking questions like, how do we rebuild trust in institutions, but then also trust in our fellow Americans? And how do we get people to recommit to democracy again and continue to put us on that path to becoming that more perfect union? You know, this is all to say that our work in the past few weeks has really been building off of these conversations happening nationally. And we've been working closely with the civics community as well as the national security community at large to see how we can elevate civic education as a national security imperative so that it can help grow democratic resilience, both domestically in terms of institutional resilience and societal resilience as a way to really address threats like disinformation. Asking some pretty big questions there, Davey. <laughs> um, and I believe our last person up is McKenna. Hi, thanks so much for having us, Christine. I'm with the Aerospace Security Project, and we've been pretty lucky so far that there haven't been any major disturbances in space. In fact, space has been relatively quiet for President Biden throughout the election and in this first month in office, though it has gotten some more attention in the last few weeks. You know, this is pretty understandable, as my colleagues have all outlined, there's a lot going on in national security right now. 
a lot of it's extremely important and has to be dealt with right away. So we know that it might be a little bit before the Biden administration really, you know, takes some big steps in space. And we're okay with that. A change in administration generally means that there's a change in the direction of space programs, but that doesn't seem to be the case so far. Commercial space activities and testing have been continuing at a rapid pace so far. Though there is some speculation, the White House has confirmed that they're continuing the development of the newest military branch, the Space Force, and the White House has similarly supported NASA's Artemis mission back to the moon. So one of the first big decisions President Biden will have to make in space will be to select the next NASA administrator. Right now, there's an acting administrator from the last administration, but that's really it so far. So luckily for me, our research gets to stay the same right now, and we will get to continue to see the rapid development of military, civil, and commercial space. That's great. Thanks, McKenna. And to your point, I think everyone showed us this morning how many different things are going on in the world right now. So I'd like to kind of keep going on that idea and think about what these biggest challenges we're going to see for the Biden administration in foreign policy and national security over the next year. I think you've all touched on, you know, kind of what's happening, but things will certainly continue to change. And Katrina, I'd like to start with you because I think that the domestic terrorism question is huge and and how we grapple with that as a nation is to be seen. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on what you think the Biden administration can do. As the Biden administration starts to look at, you know, diverting a lot of counterterrorism resources and efforts, including training for law enforcement and security agencies to looking at extremists operating in the United States as opposed to more global terrorist threats, I think that there are several big challenges that are going to underlie all of these efforts. And One of these, of course, is this underlying deep threat of disinformation and the conspiracy theories, as Davey mentioned previously. But specifically, I think that we need to be able to see this counterterrorism response really as accounting for the needs of all of society and not just being really focused on these radicalized networks and individuals, although, of course, they are really the target of the efforts in the first place. So I see three big challenges that the Biden administration is going to have to navigate here. First, they'll have to avoid perceptions of politicization in how they respond to this threat, particularly after many of the events of January 6th were really intertwined with Donald Trump and the so-called Stop the Steal campaign around the election, and more broadly, this perception that certain types of extremists are affiliated with the right end of the political spectrum, or certain types of extremists are affiliated with the left end of the spectrum. We really need to keep strong standards based on the actions that extremist groups are committing, uh, the crimes that they've committed, rather than any perception that a group is being disrupted because it falls into a specific bucket on the political spectrum. The second big issue is going to be avoiding infringing on First Amendment rights. So one of the biggest reasons that we don't have as robust an infrastructure for countering domestic terrorism as we do for international terrorism is that the First Amendment does guarantee everyone in the United States freedom of speech, assembly, and so on. And so we really are bound to 
you know, prosecuting people and seeking people out for the actions and the crimes that they commit rather than simply having ideas. And this is one reason why I and others have cautioned against doing something like a domestic terrorism designation for groups and organizations, in addition to the fact that the domestic terrorism landscape is, you know, made up of a wide range of loose networks, decentralized ideologies, and not really groups that you can target, any kind of group designation really risks infringing on freedom of speech and particularly targeting a lot of groups that have historically been marginalized, including racial and ethnic minorities, the LGBTQ community, and others. So we really need to still pursue a rights-first mindset in countering extremism and in responding to disinformation in the United States. So the third issue kind of stemming off of this is the issue of restoring public trust in law enforcement and in domestic security institutions. And this is especially huge amongst the black community and other racial and ethnic minorities. And part of this, too, is, of course, addressing the root problems and inequities that have really fueled that distrust in the first place. And in that sense, we, we have to avoid just, you know, strengthening law enforcement to go after groups that or networks that we're considering to be terrorists without gaining the trust of society that we will really need the buy-in from to be able to look at you know, our neighbors that are being radicalized by information on the internet to get information about networks operating within the United States and to make clear to people that their rights under the First Amendment and their rights as U.S. residents or U.S. citizens will be preserved, even as the counterterrorism structure within the government begins to turn its eye inward. Thanks, Katrina. It sounds like the issue of trust is a really important one for the American people, you know, to grapple with moving forward. And I kind of want to pick up on what you were talking about with radicalization. And we know that's happening not only in the United States, but also globally. And as Grace mentioned, you know, we're also drawing down our troops internationally. And so I'd like if you could hop in and kind of talk a little bit about how you think the Biden administration will handle that question moving forward. Absolutely. Well, I anticipate that one of the biggest challenges for the administration will be deciding on the level of U.S. commitment in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Biden administration will have to decide what U.S. presence is needed to prevent the revival of violent extremism, as you mentioned, but also how we are going to counter Iran's growing influence, especially in Iraq, as well as fulfill the peace negotiations between the Afghan central government and the Taliban. Now, whether that decision is remaining in the region or conducting a complete withdrawal, this new administration will need to create a consistent strategy to determine the U.S. presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's imperative that this strategy considers the long-term implications of any decision, as well as the message signaled to both our strategic partners and our competitors, which currently most notably is Russia and Syria and Iran. Thanks, Grace. And uh, Emma, I'd like if you could hop in and, and maybe talk about what you think the biggest challenge for the Biden administration might be in foreign policy and national security. So I think that this presidency will be a big transition. Most Americans alive today have only ever known a world in which this country is basically in control of how our world works. 
I think we'll have to figure out how we'll get used to more disruption, like the Crimea annexation, like the growing repression in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. As our relative dominance declines, other actors are changing the world, and the cost and blood and treasure of trying to stop that change is going up. So a lot of Americans you know, think we have it bad right now or that our foreign policy has been a disaster in the context of us being on top of the world still. So the Biden administration will really need to socialize the idea that we have to really prioritize what we care about and make important sacrifices to achieve those goals. That's a great point, Emma. Thank you. Davey, you touched on a lot of different topics. You are researching a lot of very interesting things. If you could talk a little bit about how you see global inequality changing the world in 2021. Relative to our work, one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is just how global inequality is going to impact these pandemic recovery plans. So just at the very practical level, how countries are going to go about vaccinating their domestic public and how they're going to actually come out of this pandemic. But then there's also going to be all of these follow-on narratives that are going to be tied to the recovery timelines. So some of the questions that we're all going to want to you know, be watching for and seeing what transpires is how nations certain nations emerge as leaders with regard to domestic recovery and their ability to potentially help other nations in their recovery plans. But then conversely, how do certain actors take advantage of these inequalities to try to grow spheres of influence via promises of, of COVID relief for struggling nations? And then kind of as a layer on top of all of this is disinformation that a few of us have talked about already. And Global inequality really does create room for disinformation to spread. We know domestically that inequality can breed grievance that really contributes to a climate where disinformation can thrive. So we 100% can anticipate that a similar thing will happen in the global context as well. That's very interesting, Davey. Thank you for your insight. I am curious, McKenna, if you've thought about what things we should think about for the next year in space. Is there anything you're watching out for that might be exciting that we should look forward to or maybe a little scary that we should be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are both for sure. I'd say exciting things are a lot in civil space and commercial space. You know, we're seeing NASA really improve their Artemis program, which is really exciting. We've seen a lot of really exciting commercial tests happening. They're not all perfect, but they're, you know, they're getting there. And that work is really exciting to see on our screens. Something that's a little bit scarier, maybe, is the development of national security space. You know, we rely on space so much in our day to day lives, increasingly with the pandemic, as more people are working from home and using Internet services more. So, you know, making sure that our assets are safe in space. Our allies and our adversaries are developing these counter space weapons that can pose a threat to our satellites in space. So making sure that everything is secure will be really important in the next year. Suzanne, I would pose the same question to you uh, in the nuclear space. What kind of things might we look out for over the next year? Over the next year, it's really going to be interesting to see, as we can tell from everybody's responses, it is a crowded foreign policy national security space. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Biden administration continues to push forward on arms control efforts. So with this extension of New START, the Biden administration and Russia bought themselves five years to negotiate a follow-on treaty. However, that follow-on treaty is going to need to be slightly different than what came before. It's going to focus probably less on actually numeric reductions or limiting things. A new follow-on treaty is going to need to focus on Russia's novel systems, 
which are not currently covered under arms control agreements. It's also going to have to grapple with the issue of Russia's non-compliance in a host of arms control agreements. On top of that, Russia has been engaging in a lot of different gray zone activities. And their activities in the gray zone and the increasingly tense relations between Russia and the United States are going to make arms control negotiations more difficult. Finally, there's a lot of questions as to how China is going to be brought into the arms control space. They're not currently willing to come to the table or be part of existing arms control agreements. So the Biden administration will have to figure out what risk reduction, including arms control, looks like with China. We also have Iran and North Korea as questions that kind of remain out in the ether for the administration to grapple with. So a lot of different moving parts for the Biden administration to figure out how to move forward on with arms control. And Simone, I'd like to go to you to to talk a little bit more about what you mentioned before with diversity and inclusion. You know, it's such an important question, and I, I do feel hopeful about the Biden administration, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, what you think they should do over the next year and what you're hoping to see. What I think is interesting is the reminder that all of these issues are, yes, it's a crowded space when we're looking at foreign policy, but something that can seem so domestic, such as our race issues, is r- recognizing that it is a part of our foreign policy imperative as well. So what it is, is that challenge between the two-headed coin of making sure that we're tackling both our domestic and foreign policy issues in tandem. So what I'm looking for with the Biden administration is, as I mentioned at the, the top of the discussion, is that the administration has done a lot of things to indicate that they're focusing on diversity and inclusion initiatives, such as like their appointments, the executive orders and things like that. But what I'm going to look to them for is to continue this and to make it an imperative that is not only spoken to and part of the rhetoric, but is also a part of the actual policies and decisions that we're making. So last year, I think the country had a reckoning with a lot of the issues that happened over the summer. But I think what allowed that was because we were kind of isolated due to social isolation from managing the COVID pandemic. So it focused a lot of us to grapple with these issues. And I'm just really hoping that it's not a moment, but that it continues on and that we don't lose the momentum. But like I said, I am hopeful. So I do think that we need to continue to place emphasis on DEI efforts. I mean, it's slow and steady, but that's all right. There are several reports out there that show that diversity is important. I'm hoping that we continue to do diversity, not just for the business case, but diversity for diversity's sake. I truly think if we include all individuals in our foreign policy decision-making apparatus, that we will truly have policies that reflect us. Emma, in her statement, said that the concern of what does it look like with America possibly declining? But I think what we should really be asking ourselves is how not only does our decline impact us, but how is it that our decline is making space for us to allow other voices in it. I think that could be a a space in the sense of making sure that we have our stance and credibility and with our role in the world. That was a great answer, Simone. Thank you. I think that was a quite hopeful response, but I would like to toss that idea out to everyone and do a quick around the horn. If you could all maybe give me just one sentence about what makes you hopeful for the next year, I'd love to 
let our audience, you know, hear something exciting for the future. Let's go to Katrina first. There's a part of me that feels like you've given me a heavy task here to go from asking about January 6th to what makes me hopeful. But I think what does make me hopeful is that there's really been this simmering and then growing threat of domestic extremism, domestic terrorism in the United States for a long time. Our data shows that the latest wave of threat has really started around 2014 and has been growing since. And what makes me hopeful is that now we actually see attention on it and we are recognizing it. And it's not necessarily that things just started to be bad, but people started to recognize the threat that's been there and some of the tensions in society that have been present for a long time, but out of view of many people. And what makes me hopeful is that the first step to improving things, to countering problems, is recognizing them in the first place. And now that we've done that, perhaps the most difficult task, I hope that we can start to bring together a lot of smart, diverse voices to actually build the solutions instead of just trying to draw attention to the problems. That's great. Thanks, Katrina. Let's go to Davey. The thing that makes me really hopeful for the future, in spite of all of the, the gloomy things that a few of us touched on, is that this conversation about reinvigorating civic knowledge and skills really is getting tremendous traction, bipartisan traction, really. And now it's a matter of channeling these different ideas into coherent plans that can reach people across the country and address their different needs. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but a lot of folks are interested in, in doing that work. And so that makes me very hopeful for the future. Thanks, Davey. Let's go to Emma. First of all, I want to endorse the enthusiasm for the diversity of the Biden administration. It's not perfect, but what Simone said is absolutely right. The more diversity that you have in leadership, the better ideas you're going to have and the more representative it's going to feel to the entire country. What makes me hopeful for my area of expertise, I'm heartened by the strategic focus of our incoming leaders at DOS and DOD. It was so telling that Dr. Hicks answered a lot of those Danky questions in her confirmation hearing about, you know, exactly how big the defense budget should be or which bases or platforms she would shut down and preserve by stating simply that those decisions would be driven by strategy rather than the other way around. So that's always more difficult once you get into office, but she's been in office before and she knows how hard it is. It's people like that who I think are going to make our foreign policy and defense policy better over time. And as people who have worked for Dr. Hicks, I think we can all agree that's very, very true. Let's head over to Grace. I believe we all touched upon that concept that the time to act is now. And so I am hopeful that we will learn from the mistakes we have made. We've witnessed popular unrest both domestically and abroad. Since 2019, Iraqis have been protesting against their government. We've also seen civil unrest in Hong Kong, and we've seen it here in Washington, D.C. And so, now we know that we have vulnerabilities as a nation, and hopefully we can take the time to address them. Thank you, Grace. McKenna. So I feel very lucky to be working in space right now. There's a real excitement in space that continues to grow every year, which is really amazing to see. Something I'm really excited for is the NASA Artemis program that I mentioned earlier, which aims to put another man and the first woman on the moon. And they've pledged to get there with international and commercial partners. So space is a really exciting place for countries to come together and get to share the experience and excitement of space and scientific discovery. And that's very inspiring. 
Yes, smart women, smart power can't wait for for a woman to, to go. Simone. What makes me hopeful is seeing such a diverse cabinet put in place. I think that's hopeful to look forward to, not just like for me as an individual who works in national security and can see individuals who look like me in these high spaces, but like for the generation below me, for them to see such a diverse range of people working. And also knowing that like the generation below us is already like doing their own work and campaigns. So I, I am hopeful that not just the energy at the bottom, but it's the energy throughout our nation that is truly going to get incorporation of all thoughts and that we can truly be a country that not only represents all people, but a country that can show those values inward and outwardly. That's great. Thanks, Simone. And last but not least, Suzanne. We have all talked about how hopeful we are. And I think that that's a great thing given everything that has happened in the last year. On arms control for me, the extension of New Start was really promising for arms control and the continuation of arms control where, you know, under the last administration, there were a lot of arms control treaties that fell apart, either from Russian non-compliance or from decisions to withdraw because it was no longer in the U.S. interest. I think it's really important moving forward that the Biden administration continues this energy that they have on arms control. And I'm really hopeful that the people that are going into government understand that. And I think they do. So I'm most interested to see kind of what happens in the next couple of years in negotiating new arms control agreements with Russia, bringing in China and, you know, kind of going beyond the previous structure that we had on arms control to focus on different things like cyberspace, to focus on counter space and space domain. And I think that that will be a really great area for the Biden administration to move into. Well, thanks, everyone, for letting me end on that hopeful note. And thank you again for joining me on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. We're very excited and grateful to Beverly Kirk, our host, for letting the junior staff do a takeover of the episode today. And we hope that you will listen to us again soon. Thanks. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.